Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Morning again. <laughs> uh, my name is David Buving. Most of you know me. I'm the youth and worship director here at Bethany, and I'm going to be filling in for our lead pastor, Jeff Jennings. He's on vacation this morning. Um, in youth pastor circles this morning, the Sunday after Christmas, is often called Youth Pastor Sunday. <laughs> Sunday after Christmas tends to have a little bit lower attendance, and so we reward those of you who are committed enough to be here by forcing you to listen to the youth pastors. All joking aside, I'm really excited to be up here this morning. I'm really excited to dive back into the book of Mark with you. We get this opportunity to go straight from the birth of Jesus, that was last week for anybody who wasn't paying attention, and straight from that into the triumphal entry. And that's going to begin the last week of Jesus' life. The triumphal entry is the beginning of this process where we see what Jesus came to do. We see that he came to die. We see that his ultimate purpose was to make people right with God. We all love politics, don't we? <laughs> love, is that not the right word? Okay. Uh, we're intrigued by them. <laughs> we either love to love them or we love to hate them. I don't know many people who feel neutral about politics. Dead inside, maybe, but not neutral. <laughs> uh, I asked someone the other day how their relationship was with their extended family. And they said, oh, I have a, a pretty good relationship with my extended family, but we disagree, with, disagree about politics. But, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to that sentiment. It seems so central to who we are that we really struggle to have relationships with people that we disagree with about politics. All of us recognize how broken this world is. Most of us have experienced some really heavy, difficult things in our life. And if you haven't, then the reality is you most likely will. We all long for things to just be fixed. We just want the world to work. 
And one of the ways that we deal with that is through politics. We, we try to fix the world's problems through laws or inspirational leaders, right? We're all tempted to create functional saviors or, or maybe demons out of our politicians. If only this person was elected or wasn't elected, then, then everything will be okay again. We do the same thing with our laws, right? If, if the right law passes, then, then my world will be okay again. If we look at the past two years, we see really easily we can see this going on, right? With the people around us, and if we're honest, probably us too. The reality is that the people at the time of Jesus were no different. They were longing for their messed up world to be fixed, right? They wanted Israel to be fixed. They had a great history. They weren't always ruled by the Romans. They had the great King David in their past. They all hoped that a leader like David would come along again and he'd fix things, that he'd restore things, he'd build things back up. And we're going to see this morning how Jesus steps into that role but he goes completely against everyone's expectations. We're going to see how Jesus establishes himself as a king over people rather than over systems. It's clear as we look at Mark that Jesus is calling himself king. He leaves no doubt about that. He is the king. But we're going to see something else that would have been really completely shocking to the people of Israel at the time of his triumphal entry. He didn't come to overtake systems. He didn't come to overthrow governments. He didn't come to legislate obedience. Jesus came to care for hurting people and to provide a path for those who are humble enough that recognize that they're part of a problem. Humble enough to realize that they need God to save them from themselves. Jesus came to be a servant king. We see Jesus establish himself as a king over people rather than systems. All right, open up your outlines. We're going to look at four different ways that Jesus shows us who he is and what his kingdom is all about. The first of those is this. Jesus shows that his focus, shows his focus as he transitions from silence to boldly proclaiming himself king. Up until this point, we see Jesus constantly telling people to remain silent about who he is. Five different places in the small book of Mark leading up to this spot, Jesus tells people to not proclaim his identity, to not tell others about what he's done for them or about who he is. And I don't know about you, but I've always struggled with that idea. Right? Why would Jesus ask people to remain silent? And there may be a few things going on, but I think the reality is that Jesus knew that as his true identity became more widely known, the Jewish leaders would feel more pressure to silence him for good. Jesus knew that his time had not yet come to die, and that once he boldly proclaimed who he was, his death would be following shortly after. We see here, Jesus transitioning from his life of ministry, showing that he was sent from God into the week that leads up to his crucifixion. 
We see him submitting to God's glorious plan for redemption. Jesus shows us that his focus is on the cross. Jesus is showing us, yes, he did come to establish his kingdom, but he plans to do that through sacrificing himself on the cross. He's doing something that no other ruler has done. He's establishing a kingdom through self-sacrifice rather than through force. As David Garland puts it in his commentary on Mark, this entry is not triumphal. He appears in the city as he had forewarned three times to suffer and die, not to set up a rival kingdom to Caesar's. He comes as a king who will be crowned with thorns, enthroned on a cross, and hailed as the chief of fools. His entrance points to a different kind of triumph than the one envisioned by the crowds, one that will be far more powerful than any Davidic monarchy and more far-reaching than the narrow borders of Israel or even the Roman Empire. Jesus' kingdom is unlike anything this world has seen. He didn't come to overthrow governments. He came to care for people. Jesus is a king, but his kingdom is about bringing people back to God, not about systems and structures, laws and leaders. He didn't come for power, but he came to point us to the one who is all-powerful. And as followers of Jesus, as, as members of his kingdom, we have to live lives showing God's love. His kingdom isn't defined by power, but by love and humility. Our lives should be filled with loving those hurting people around us, and with the humility to recognize that we're not all that different. Jesus came as our sacrificial king, and it's only reasonable that we should show that in the way that we live. By transitioning from silence to boldly entering Jerusalem as king, he knowingly puts a target on his back. He shows us here that his focus is on the cross. And as we look further into the passage here, we're going to see the second way that Jesus shows us who he really is and what his kingdom is about. Jesus shows his authority in how he plans this procession. The way that Mark records the triumphal entry is a little unique from the other Gospels. And as I was thinking about preaching on the triumphal entry, uh, before I'd really started studying the passage, I was thinking about some of the cool features of this story. One of my favorites is when Jesus tells the religious leaders that if, if he silences the crowds, that the very rocks are going to cry out. I got myself all excited, and then I read the passage in Mark, and I'm not going to lie, the first time I read it, I was a little bit let down. All those details, all those details I was hoping for were missing. But as I kept reading more and more, I got excited. As I read through the passage, two things stood out to me really clearly. The first one was this. Mark puts all the emphasis on Jesus and what he does. And he kind of makes the actions of the crowds an afterthought. All the focus is on Jesus and who he is, what his kingdom is like. The second thing's coming towards the end of the sermon, so if you want to hear that, you'll have to stay awake. So, uh, But anyways, Jesus, the focus is on Jesus, how he handles the process. Mark shows that Jesus has 
authority. The first thing that we notice as we dive into this passage is that Jesus tells the the disciples exactly what to do, and they obey. (laughs) And it might seem like a small detail, but the reality is that, that you and I struggle to obey the things that Jesus has told us to do in his word every day. We struggle to recognize that Jesus has authority and then to act on it. Also, this is just the beginning of several other details that Mark is using to paint a picture for us. Mark doesn't want us to miss that Jesus is the focus, that he has the authority and that everything happens because he mandated it, right? Nothing is left up to chance, but but Jesus speaks and then things happen. We see Jesus sends his disciples with instructions on what they should do and how it's going to happen. And not only do the disciples obey what seems to be a fairly strange request, if we're honest, but every element of the process happens exactly how Jesus said it would. Let's look at a couple examples here. In verse 2, Jesus says, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And then in verse 4, we see the disciples acting. And, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Jesus spoke. The disciples acted, and it was just as Jesus said. And then in verse 3, we see, If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And then when the disciples go, it says, And some of those who were standing there with them said, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. It can be really easy for us to jump over little details like this. But when we read the Bible, we have to recognize that everything that the authors are doing, they're doing for a reason. And too often as Christians, I think we kind of treat the Bible as a boring book of random information. Random facts, random rules, random history, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Not only is this the very word of God, but it's also fantastic literature that deserves to be read carefully and intentionally. Mark shows us exactly what Jesus says and exactly what happens because he wants us to understand that Jesus is in control of the situation. Jesus has all authority. He's the Messiah, the King that they've been waiting for. When he speaks, his disciples act. When he describes what's going to happen, it happens. Jesus is the King. He has all authority. And that leads me to a question that Jeff asked us a couple weeks ago. Is Jesus the authoritative voice in your life? Is Jesus the authoritative voice in your life? Do you run your life decisions through his word and through prayer? I mean, all of life. (laughs) Your relationships, your time, your money, how you treat other people, your choices in entertainment. Is Jesus the authoritative voice that you turn to when you're making decisions in your life? If you're a Christian, Jesus has to be the highest authority in your life. 
Jesus also shows us his authority by his choice of how to enter the city. Jesus could have stirred up the crowds just by walking into town. Frankly, they were so hungry for a leader. They wanted this king to be coming, right? They, they were waiting. Or he could have really, really riled the crowds up by riding in on a horse. But he doesn't. He rides into Jerusalem on a young donkey. This isn't the sign of a warrior entering. This is a sign of a king peacefully entering into his kingdom. The reality is that Jesus didn't need to enter with his sword drawn. He didn't have to overthrow the Roman government because he already had all the authority. This was his kingdom already. He didn't have to win. He is God. Beyond that, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey echoes back to a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 about the Messiah Israel was waiting for. We read there, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The people were waiting for this Messiah. They were desperate for this king to come. When Jesus chose to ride in on the colt of a donkey, when, when he chose to ride into Jerusalem this way, he was declaring to everyone around him, I am that king. I am the one you've been waiting for. And that leads us into our third point. Jesus establishes himself as king by how he enters Jerusalem. Everything that happens in this passage points us to that fact. Jesus viewed himself as the long awaited messianic king, the king in the line of David that had come to save Israel. He's what they were hoping for. It's popular in, in some circles today to, to question if Jesus even really claimed to be Messiah. But we see clearly in this passage that Jesus' actions point to who he was, who he is, the king. Actions speak louder than words, and I think that's why we see Jesus acting and living as God far more often than we see him proclaiming it about himself, right? He does the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. Jeff's been out of the office this past week, and so imagine I came up here this Sunday and I said, I am the lead pastor, um, most of you would either laugh at me, or if I really insisted on it, you'd probably chase me out of the church, which is reasonable. <laughs> uh, but imagine instead that I, I moved into Jeff's office, and I started preaching every Sunday, and obviously this example doesn't exactly work because we have great elders, and you guys are really well informed, but bear with me for a moment. <laughs> imagine more and more people around the church just started talking about the fact that I was the lead pastor, that instead of proclaiming about myself what I thought I was, you saw me sacrificially loving and, and caring for the church in a way that, that seemed fitting for a lead pastor. Which one would be more convincing, right? We look at people's actions to see the truth about what's going on. Now, the good news for everyone is that story has no bearing on reality. <laughs> I love working under Jeff, and I love working with youth and worship and plan to be here doing that for a very, very long time. 
But you get the point. Actions speak louder than words. We've seen people from time to time come onto the scene and claim to be God or claim to be Messiah, and, and the only reasonable response is to, to laugh or cry because their, their lives don't back up what they're saying. But Jesus didn't just proclaim who he was. He lived his life in a way that showed who he was. He lived fulfilling out the Old Testament prophecies. He showed his power by healing people. And he declared who he was by his actions. And after about three years of showing the world who he was with his powerful signs and wonders, Jesus rides into Jerusalem in a way that only makes sense for the Messiah. And the people respond in the only way that's reasonable. Their words and their actions show that they understood his actions, right? What they said, what they did, reveals that they understood very clearly what Jesus was claiming in this moment. In verse 8, we see that they spread their clothes on the road in front of him, sacrificing what they owned to show honor to Jesus and to affirm that he was the Messiah, the king that they'd all been waiting for. And then if we look in verses 9 and 10, they make several declarations. The first, uh, or sorry, the, the first is that they declare that, um, sorry, they sing blessings on him for coming in the name of the Lord. They also link him to King David's kingdom, the greatest monarch that Israel had ever known and the one that God had promised would always have a son on the throne. They were declaring that Jesus was this king, the king that God had promised from long ago. And then they say this word over and over, Hosanna, and we sang it a couple times this morning as well. Hosanna was a statement of praise, but it literally meant Save us, we pray. Over and over declaring, save us, we pray, but in a manner of praise. And even though they didn't fully understand it at that point, they were correct to praise him as Messiah and to pray to him for salvation. They were correct to praise him as Messiah and to pray to him for salvation. Jesus doesn't stop them. He rides into town in a way that only makes sense for a king, all the while watching as they sing praises to him. Imagine my earlier example about me moving into Jeff's office and people going around saying that I was the lead pastor. Imagine that Jeff came back after a month or so and he asked me, why did you let them believe that? And my defense was, well, I never said I was the lead pastor. That wouldn't go over well. <laughs> Beyond being fired, most of you can recognize that that is ridiculous that I wouldn't correct false rumors. For Jesus not to step up and say that he wasn't what these people proclaimed doesn't fit, doesn't make sense. He lives his life showing that he's God and Messiah, right? And he never corrects anybody who understands that truth about him. Just a few chapters ago in Mark, Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah and God, and Jesus says that God the Father must have revealed this to him. When people recognize who Jesus is, he owns it. 
And then if we look at the account in Luke that I was talking about earlier, Jesus tells those who are bothered by what the crowds are saying that if he were to silence them, the very rocks would cry out. There's no doubt that in this moment, Jesus is boldly proclaiming to the world again that he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king. But as we turn here and look at how his journey ends, we'll see that while the crowds were correct in understanding who he was, they were wrong about what his kingdom would look like. Jesus didn't come as a political or a military leader. Our last point is this. Jesus shows his focus by by how he ends the procession, surveying the temple. Jesus' focus wasn't to deal with the, the oppression of the corrupt Roman government. His focus was to care for the people of Israel and to bring them back to God. The second thing that I noticed as I read this passage over and over, the thing that I promised earlier is, is how the passage ends. The triumphal entry doesn't end at the capital or, or in some kind of a battle. It doesn't end in a party <laughs> or, or with him searching out new troops. Jesus ends his triumphal entry here by surveying the temple, viewing the corruption that was taking place there, and Jesus shows us that his focus is on religious corruption rather than governmental corruption. Jesus was far more worried about people pushing people away from God than he was about what the government was doing. This moment calmly foreshadows him coming to clear the temple in just a few verses. Many of the religious leaders were corrupt and were allowing the temple to be used to take advantage of the poor and the humble, of those who were trying to follow God but didn't have it all together, didn't know everything, the very people who belonged in his kingdom, according to Matthew 5.3, the ones who recognized their need for God. I'm not going to go into many details because I don't want to ruin Jeff's sermon for next week. But I think it's very telling that the destination of Jesus' kingly entry was not to survey military needs, but it was to review the state of the religious system that was supposed to be pointing people to God. Jesus is here showing us what the kingdom of God is truly about. He shows us that his focus is on restoring people to God. Jesus didn't come to set right the political systems, not this time. He came, right, he came to set right the relationship between God and man. Jesus didn't believe that the political systems were of utmost importance, but people and their relationship to God, that is what matters ultimately. He is the king And the only way to enter his kingdom is by humbly accepting his gift of salvation. But just like the people of Jesus' day, it can be so tempting to focus all our energy on fixing the things of this world. Rather than pursuing Jesus, 
can be so tempting to focus on the kingdoms of this world, to fixing our problems here, rather than focusing on His kingdom. Or maybe we even try to use Jesus to accomplish our goals here on this earth. Right? We, we all have goals. Maybe it's political, using Jesus' name to try and create the kind of country or state that you want. Or, or it's more personal, where we fail to recognize who Jesus is, right? He's God. He's king. And we, we try to manipulate or use him to try and accomplish our hopes and our dreams. Not that that's even possible, but that's what we're going for sometimes. The people wanted to use Jesus as a tool to gain comfort and social standing. And it's easy for us to do the same thing. But Jesus' kingdom isn't an invitation to an easy life. Jesus' kingdom is an invitation to take up your cross and follow him daily. It's an invitation to know the God who made you and to someday live with him forever in heaven. It's an invitation to sacrificially love our neighbors and to point people back to God. The reality is that Jesus didn't come to conquer our inconveniences and our frustrations, our difficulties in this world, but he came to be our source of comfort and our source of strength as we go through difficult times. He came to conquer sin and to set us free from the curse so that we could know him, to restore our relationship with God. He came to give us a purpose. That purpose is to glorify him above all else. We can't look like this world around us. We can't let politics or anything other than the kingdom of God be central to our identities. We have to be all about Jesus. He, he isn't an add-on to our lives. He is our life. Paul says it perfectly in Colossians 3. Set your mind on the things that are above not on the things that are of the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We've got to be people who are about his kingdom, right? That, that has to be what we're about. Don't let your life reflect the priorities of this world but let it reflect the priorities of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom. God, we, uh, we thank you that you came to solve our deepest need. That you came to fix our relationship with you. God, even though we fail and we mess it up, you came and you sacrificially gave of yourself so that you could invite us into your kingdom. That gift is incredible, and, and I pray that we would we'd recognize how great you are, how generous you are, and that our lives would, 
would be filled with a response of love. God, I pray that that you would be making us new, transitioning us from the things of this world that we're now dead to, transitioning us into the things of your kingdom. Pray that you would be working in our hearts, changing us. Don't leave us the same. Change us to be like you. Change us to be filled with with love for God and for our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.